the Dr. Lori Marvis podcast, and today I have Rick Friday, who is quite the Renaissance man. He has he's a farmer. He's also a cartoonist, and you know I think he could probably be a stand-up comedian as well. How are you doing today, Rick? I'm doing good, Lori. Well, thank you for taking the time out of your day to join me. Well, thank you. Well, thank you for calling me. Wonderful. So you have a really interesting story, but before we get into kind of the craziness that occurred last year, could you tell me a little bit about yourself, your childhood, your love of farming, and how car- you know cartoons became a big part of your life? I would love to, and I think that's that's very important. And if you want to know something about someone, you just ask them what they do for a living, and they're more than happy to tell you. But, um, I grew up in the 60s. Um, grew up on a farm, a small farm in southwest Iowa, and uh, I, my mother told me that I started drawing when I was four on the, on the toy box, and then when I started school, I would actually sell those illustrations or those drawings to the other children for nickels and dimes. Now, growing up on the farm, we may have been poor, but we sure didn't feel poor, Um the country kind of protects you, protects you from that. Um, but things were a lot different then than they are now. Uh, a, pot, a bottle of pop was actually a it was a pleasure. It was something we didn't get very often. So there's a cute story behind that. But if we were good kids, which, which is, we were good kids once in a while, Lori, but... Uh, it's just my sister and I grew grew up on the farm with, with my our parents and and uh, mom would get us a bottle of pop and my sister was a little sharper than I was and so what she would do is we'd take turns on you know each day this this might seem odd but we didn't get pop every day we got pop maybe once a week so it was a big deal we'd set the glasses on the table and we would take turns pouring if I poured last week. My sister would pour this week. She would always pour the pop into a glass, and she'd always pour about a mouthful or more into her glass. And I would say, "Well, that ain't—that's not fair. That's not right. You're getting more than me." So she would tip the glass up and drink it and even it up. <laughs> and I never caught on. <laughs> smart sister. Yeah, smart kid. Uh, anyway, I, I've always drawn, and uh, I take the money. I'd mix those cartoons on the school bus, and Sis and I, on Saturday afternoon, would walk to town, and we each have a bottle of pop and a chicken stick with that money. So I've always drawn. It was kind of a distraction in school. Uh, but actually, uh, my art teacher worked hard and got me a scholarship. But uh, as with a lot of things with farming, it tends to trump a lot of the opportunity. And I thought someday I would farm like my father, so I did not take that scholarship. And my father, when I was 14, I'm going to back up a little bit. He took me into the local elevator, and he dropped me off and said, today is the first day on your job. So at 14, I started working on Saturday. So when I graduated, I went to work for this elevator. Could you describe really what an elevator is? Because I grew up in the country, but a lot of people may not know what that means. They think of elevators as a building. So tell us what an elevator is. (laughs) Oh, exactly. Okay, Okay. a grain elevator is where the local farmers took all their grain 
corn, soybeans, oats. They'd also buy animal feed, um, anything that they wanted, pretty much. There's also a fertilizer chemical plant. That was all in the one. And uh, I started working there when I was about 14 and after school, all the way through school, and I went to work there full time. Well, during the farm crisis, the 80s, that elevator had shut down, or that grain elevator had shut down. So I was unemployed. And uh, I applied for a minimum wage job as a janitor at a local at a manufacturing facility in town. And I worked my way up to the company. I started out uh, as a lead person after three years. And then at age 26, I became a supervisor. And then uh, in 1993, I became the manager of the facility. It's very important that that you work your way into something instead of thinking that you need to be at the top of a corporation. I think it's very important in whatever you do to work your way into it. In 93, when I was given a job, it was a boost of confidence, and confidence is so important. You can't believe what people can do with a little confidence. So I took my work, I took my drawings, and I sent portfolios out to different papers, thinking in my mind that it was useless, but it actually worked out really good. I was first published in 93 as well. And also I started writing, so I was writing for papers and and drawing for papers. What were you writing about? What were you writing about, if you don't mind? Just about about my life, growing up in my childhood and, and certain things. Just uh, It was... It, uh, kind of a biography of my childhood. I had a wonderful childhood, wonderful childhood, and, and and I just wanted to share that with everyone. Wonderful. And uh, I also drawn cartoons for several local papers, and the agreement was that I would get a subscription to the paper because they couldn't afford to pay for a cartoonist, and that's even getting that way today. But... Uh, <laughs> um, so, in 1995, I did a little work for Wallace Farmer. It's a, a, a agricultural magazine, and I did a little work for them. And Farm News started up out of Fort Dodge. It's a it's a farm related magazine. It's got a circulation of about 33,000 people. Uh, the top two tiers of the state of Iowa. Um, so I started working them. I started with Farm News actually in 1995 as the first cartoonist, and for 21 years I was there. Every every Friday I would sit down, or excuse me, every Sunday I would sit down and and draw cartoons for the next week on they publish on Friday. I did that for 22 over 1,090 cartoons. I drawn for Farm Days. I give up all the other papers. I still continue to write. For local paper here, but that's how I got started into into drawing cartoons. That's incredible. So what happened? You know, a couple of days. You know, we'll get into the farm news story, but you had mentioned to me previously how you feel there was something that happened a couple of days before the farm news event that occurred. What what was that exactly? Well, that's that story is one that I have not told too many people. I'm glad you asked that. I'm more welcome to tell you what happened. It's really it's really neat. 
the farming, I've always, I've, I started on, in 2006, the plant shut down, and I had an opportunity to go uh, with the corporation, but I chose to stay on the farm with my parents as partner. And I got really, really good years with Dad, four really good years, and Dad passed away two years ago. And a lot of the passion that I have for this profession died with him. Mm-hmm. And it's been a real struggle for me to decide whether if this is something I want to do, farming, or if I want to pursue something else. And I've been asking God for a long time, what is my purpose? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? And last spring, I it was raining, and, and I have 100 head of cattle. And I spend every minute with them, every every daylight hour and some night hours with them while they're having their babies. It's really important to me to be with them. And I went out one morning behind my house. They're, real, they're close to my house. And a cow had a baby in a mud hole. And it was pouring down rain and snow, cold, miserable, terrible morning. And the calf was in the water and partially submerged, and the hypothermia had kicked in, and the calf was, was about to die. And I took my coat off, and I wrapped the calf, and I warmed him up. Thank God his mother was gentle. And eventually got him to stand and got him to nurse, and she walked off with him. And I'm still on my knees in this, what, this mud hole. The rain's hitting my face, the snow, the cold, and I look up, I say, God, is this what I'm supposed to do? Really? Is this really what I'm supposed to do? You know, if I'm supposed to do something else, would you give me a sign? And I think everybody asks that question. Definitely. I think you're right. So, what... And two days later, I'm guessing about two days later, Lori, I come in, I, was, I, I have some baby monitors that I watched young mothers in my barns throughout the night. So if they have trouble birthing, I can be there to help them. And I was watching a young mother, and I opened up my laptop, and Farm News had fired me for a cartoon that I had drawn. And it was published the day, the Friday before. This was on a Saturday. Um it all kind of made sense to me. It was like, well, the, this, the, the good Lord not only gave me a sign, but he held me up a billboard because the cartoon has been seen around the world. The story has been told. Um, and this is where I'm at. Can you describe the cartoon and what exactly it said and how you came to draw it? What was your inspiration and such? Well, the morning I drew the cartoon, and this is the morning that I drew it, I was listening to, I was watching a mother calf, or mother having her baby in the barn with my, on the monitors. I was watching her, and she was, she was having her contractions, and, and I was listening to TV, and the, and the agribusiness report come in, come on, and uh, they announced what, the average farmer, his income or her income was in 2015, 
And then I got to thinking about the three C, three COs, and I just I, I pulled out the CO, I pulled up the information on the on the CO, CO Monsanto, Dupont Pioneer, and John Deere, and I divided that into their salary and come up with a figure. And it's two farmers sitting there, and neighbors have a lot of conversations over the fence, and it was basically that was the way the cartoon was drawn as two farmers, one saying to the other, I wish there was more money in farming, and the other saying there, there is. The CEOs for these three companies made more than 2,129 farmers in 2015, and one of the uh, one of the large uh, um, they had complained to Farm News. One business affiliated with one of those uh, three companies mentioned, and they pulled their ad, and uh, and I was fired for poking fun at Big Ad. But first thing I did was call my wife. And told her after 21 years that Farm News had let me go. And I had 300 Facebook friends, just normal. You know, you've been this small. I'm not, I really wasn't on Facebook a lot. But. So I thought, I shut my laptop and I went about my business and I thought, I'm going to tell my 300 Facebook friends about this. <laughs> and it went viral. It went viral. It went, it went around the world. Um, and you know, it was Robin O'Brien that she shared your plight in your story. And yeah. that's when I friended you on Facebook and I said, this guy needs all the support he can. Cause it's really the, the little guy against the big guy. And it says a lot to the, what'd you say? The push and shove of big ag and really it's, you know, it's undermining our ability to actually maybe do the right thing. So tell me a little bit about these small, you know, newspapers, I don't know what the circulation is of Farm News. I don't know if it's a bigger one or a smaller one. Why would, you know, one corporation pulling an ad be a big deal for them after you've worked for them for 21 years? Well, like I tried to explain to my children, they, they asked the same question. But there's two hands that feed a small publication. And advertising... <clears throat> actually feeds them more and to lose a huge advertiser would be losing a tremendous amount of revenue more so than what they were paying me and my work so the poster had to make a decision he felt he had to make a decision and it, it turned out not to be a good decision because one voice of injustice uh, can gain an army of many, uh, and they were overwhelmed. And shortly thereafter, they contacted me and wanted to hire me back. <clears throat> so after about 30 days of negotiating, I went back to Farm News. Hmm. You have to understand that the, the the people at Farm News were my family for 22 years. It was it, it was it, it hurt and it hurt them. Hmm. Uh, 
uh, some awful good people there in Farm News. Yeah, so what was their lesson learned? Did they describe anything to you about, did they apologize? What What was their initial They did reaction? apologize. They did apologize uh, several times. They did. They, had, uh, they, they very careful on the reason why they pulled, they, they hired me back. Um, but uh, it was quite obvious with the world support. I'm talking world support, Lori. I've got friends in Ireland. I've got friends in Nigeria, India, Russia, uh, the Netherlands, Sweden, uh, just all over the world, mm. people I'm still in contact with. Wonderful. And, uh, that, that's quite and an amazing story. I, I think it is. I think it is. And and, and uh, it's it's still ongoing. Mm-hmm. Where where would you like to see this go? I mean, what what would be your ultimate desire, given your talents and your experience? Where would you like to head? Well, like I said before, I, I, a good part of this passion for farming was lost when when dad passed and and it's kind of hard to explain but i had a one of the editors that i drew cartoons for visit uh, a college and there was a professor at the college that had cut out my work my cartoons and put them on the wall for its students and he said this is a an example of the hold that agriculture can have on a person, the love for the culture, the love for the life, because this man's farming and drawing cartoons, and he has more to offer the world than cows and corn. And I never forgot that. um, I do think I've got more to give. I just don't know how to do it. Um, What would be your passions? What would be something that you would enjoy doing more cartoons in a book or more of a, a, I don't know, like a more of a column in many papers. I don't know. I almost feel like there should be a Dear Rick Friday column and people write in with their complaints about life and problems because I know the conversation we had <laughs> previous is I was cracking up and uh, I think you do have a lot more to share and um, you're very humble and and quiet to share, but I, I think we, we should do some work in pulling it out of you. What what would be the media that you would feel the most comfortable expressing yourself doing that? Well, I like to – I guess I've always been a coach and somewhat of a motivator. Um, I just feel like I need to work with people. I, I'm really good with animals. I can still do that, but um, – I did speak at one time. I, I spoke to high school students, seniors who are ready to graduate at women's conferences and a variety of different organizations. I enjoyed that. But when I left the corporation world uh, and started farming full-time, uh, they quit asking me to do that. Um, but it's, I was looking through some old notes this morning, and I, and I, I have to share this. This is, I feel sorry for my children. <laughs> but... Uh, our youngest was in college, and she had a really tough time, and uh, I had to motivate her to stay four hours away, and she had a tough time, 
So I kept in constant contact with her and sent her humorous motivational messages each day trying to get her over that little that hump she needed. I guess to wean her, <laughs> you know, wean her off of being home. But she kept every message that I sent. This morning I found one that I sent to her in 2008. And this is, humor is so important in life. And you've, you have to you have to add humor, and that's what I do. I, it's helped me get through a lot of things. But I call her Little Boo. Uh, that's her nickname. And uh, this is what I sent her. Just a reminder, the little choo-choo train that said, I can, I can. Because if you say you can't, then aliens will come down to Earth and steal your mommy, and you will never see her again. Love, Papa. And that's the kind of stuff that I had sent. I think I say I feel sorry for the kids, but this is an example where the only difference between motivation and manipulation is spelling. <laughs> but <laughs> I I love life. I love humor. I like to make people laugh and smile. Uh, my mother taught me not to hate. I don't understand it. Um, and I just I don't. I think we're here to make life less difficult for others. And uh, I, I don't know. I know when I graduated from high school, underneath my picture, I said, what is your plans for life? And mine was undecided. Here I am at age 57, Lori, and I'm still undecided. <laughs> so, I, I think it's a life of many choices and things that you've enjoyed that Leads us undecided. I guess you could say I'm even undecided because I I never thought just being a doctor was enough. You know, now I'm doing podcasts and other things like that, and uh, so I I think that's a good way to live life. You can do your prim, your primary profession, and you know I'm a mom and a wife and a doc, but you just you follow those passions that God's given you, and so it'll be fun to see where you finally end up. But uh, I'm curious because we had discussed organic farming and you know big ag or the conventional farming how do you feel yeah I, go ahead i've got an interesting i've got an interesting perspective on that and i i've given this some thought and i don't want to interrupt you no go ahead with that's what i was going to ask you how do you feel about it so there you go <laughs> honestly there was little thought until this happened and it opened a lot of doors to friends I've got uh, all over. And I think it's very, very important to listen to people. Um, in the 70s, I remember this well because I was in the field, um, and this was the transition in the 70s between, believe it or not, they called it conventional farming back then when they went to no-till. My grandpa stood out there and called and told my dad it was, it was an idiotic thing to do, this new process of farming without tilling the soil. And it turned out to be quite what we call conventional today. And uh, although grandpa just shook his head, conventional or no-till farming took off rather quickly. Now I think it's ironic that the term organic farm, farming is introduced when actually it's a reborn method of farming 
And we could call that grapples the old conventional way. Mm. Um, so describe what I find. Can you describe just real quick what no-till farming is versus regular farming? Yes, so I can. What does that mean? Grandpa's way of farming was to go out with the disc and a plow and, and tear the soil up, plant the seeds, and then use a cultivator instead of herbicides and chemicals. Of any kind. A cultivator to cultivate the weeds. No-till was the process of planting without tilling the soil and then spraying herbicide on to kill the weeds. No-till works, works really, really well to stop erosion because you're not wind erosion and water erosion because you're not tearing up soil. The problem is dumping the chemicals. And then I think in 94, the first GMO tomato hit the grocery store. And then what they call Roundup or I have a hard time pronouncing this. You help me. Like so, yeah, that a girl. <laughs> the doctors, dog, you can make up your own words and call it the medicine. It's really that's good. <laughs> Actually, the pharmaceutical companies make up their own words, and we have to figure out how yeah. to pronounce them. And you have so. to figure. I don't know how you would do it. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> but that was that was pretty actually pretty ingenious. It, it's a, you plant the seed, spray the seed, and that's it. Uh, and we've been doing this for 20 years, and this is what this is. This is the problem. The urban the urban population they are the most demanding of organic, and the reason is that the rural population has the capability of growing their own food in their backyard, and basically for their own consumption. Cons- consumption and, and the urban population doesn't have that opportunity. Do you have any place that you can have a garden, Lori, where, you at, where you're at? Not where I'm at now because I live in an apartment in the middle of a city, but where I was in Colorado, I could have. I could have, I had a box. I had two box gardens, but someone told me I could actually grow five pounds of veggies on the countertop every week um, with some certain ways of doing it. And, and his name is Brian Hetrich, and I'll have him on eventually to share with us how to do that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I, I don't have a place right now. Well, maybe on my balcony I could set up some small, you know. What they call urban farming. That's a niche that's coming. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, is I'm, I'm going to tell you a little story. My wife, uh, I've got to mix the humor up. I hope you don't mind, and I hope I'm not taking too much of your time, but mm-hmm. this is really another cute story. And, of course. And you have, if, if you're going to take me, you have to take the stories. That's just the way it is. Or the agreement. But... My wife planted so much zucchini one year. We've got a garden. We can be as self-sufficient as we want to be on this farm. But my wife, last year was the first year she didn't have a garden because my mother was sick. But And we spent our time with her. But she planted so much zucchini one year, we begged her to give it away. Um, when it come time to fix a meal, we'd hide from her because we knew we were going to get zucchini. I was getting enough fiber to make a barn quilt. <laughs> on the farm, we have that opportunity to be self-sufficient by walking. I can walk 200 yards south of my house and catch fish. I can raise my own meat, poultry, my garden. I can. I can. Um, we we're pretty much. We have. We we take that. We take advantage of that in a rural area. 
the thing is, is we supply a lot of the food to the urban area. And it's a business that's customer-driven. And although the customer is being heard, farmers still have that GMO customer, so to speak. Just imagine if you you took the same route to work every day, Lori, for 20 years. But today you're given the choice to take a different route that's longer and unfamiliar. Most everyone would choose to take the most familiar route. Change is never easy. And one of the things the rural farmer sees the urban consumer does not see is that Mother Nature makes the rules and reminds us often that we're the inhabitants. Um, many weeds are now becoming resistant to these herbicides. I'm a naturalist, I guess. You might call me a tree hugger. I, I believe that everything on earth has a purpose, even the weed. And it's really quite amazing how the world works if you just take the time to appreciate it. Uh, but there's a lot of herbicides no longer after using them for 20 years. They're they're not working. Mm. It's a great opportunity for the urban farmer, the organic farmer. It's a great opportunity now to come out as entrepreneurs. Organic farming is growing at a higher rate than your domestic food uh, uh, growing in the United States. I think it was had 11 percent increase. Again, I don't. I, I, I'm just, I vaguely know the statistics. I just, I just know that organic's growing. It's not that people aren't hurt. It's just that it's really slow to react. It's like shifting gears on high speed. And uh, we personally, myself, I can't speak for every farmer. If I want organic food, I grow it in the backyard. I don't think about it. And and we talk about farmers markets, it's really difficult. It's like having a garage sale every day. You know what I mean? Right. Yep. You know, it's it's hard to sell your produce. Um, it's very competitive. Um, but there is a market for it. I'm not saying there isn't. It's just it, I'm using the example of my grandfather back in the early 70s, the way he farmed and the way my dad farmed. And how they were so slow to change, and Grandpa was so against change, and then and then when we went to the change, Grandpa was no longer farming. You have to understand the population of American farmers my age. You know how hard it is to get an old man to change or an old woman to change. Excuse my expression, but um, it's just difficult to change when you you have to change all your equipment and your whole way of thinking and everything. These huge chemical and, and, and agriculture business will come in and have huge meetings with the farmers to tell them how to be more productive, but I have yet to set in on an organic farming meeting to help you learn how to do that. Hmm. And it's just going to take time. Uh, again, it's a consumer-driven business. It's right. just going to have to take time. So what would you be your advice to the average urban dweller, grocery shopper? Should they buy everything organic, or do you feel like there are certain things that, you know, that might be cheaper if they're conventional farming versus organic? What what would be your recommendation, just given you understand what's actually going on in the actual field where our food is coming from? You know, a lot of people haven't even walked through a farm field. They have no idea. Well, 
if you're going to trust your food, you might have to grow it your own. That's just about the only way to do it. If you want to, if that's if you really want to trust your food, you can go to all the farmer markets you want. You can pick all the organic food you want. You have to trust that source. Um, and and nothing tastes better or feels better than something out of your own garden, something you've grown yourself. Uh, and a lot of people have not had that opportunity. It's something they want. They don't have the opportunity to do that. Right. I don't have the answer to that uh, question. Um, I usually direct people to a place called EWG.org. It's an environmental working group, and they have what they call their dirty list and their clean list. And it's a list of foods that have the most pesticide residue um, to avoid and should buy organic, like berries and apples and different things, and it it changes annually. So... um, yeah, definitely. What about what does a farmer typically think about this GMO stuff? I mean, what is their consensus if, when you talk to people? What what do they say? Most what do the the people say? Yeah, Actually, your farmer friends, we're, your neighbors. Well, around here, organic is just something that's coming up. <clears throat> that that's just. My opinion. I, I don't know. I I, uh, I was very. I did. I mean, I had hardly any knowledge until this this uh, in the last nine months, and I've done a lot of reading on it, and uh, there's been a lot of comments on my Facebook page and things like that. I'm trying to be very open-minded with it, mm-hmm. but uh, there is some cruelty that I see with some organic consumers with farmers that are still planting genetically modified organisms. And you have to understand that, you know, we've been doing this for 20 years. Uh, You remember when cigarettes first came out and then the filter, and all of a sudden we realized, oh, this is not good for us. You know, um, we don't, you have to understand there's still a customer out there for this product. And uh, I think there's not a farmer that I don't know that would not like to be diversified. Would not, there needs to be a market. Where are we going to buy or sell organic corn beans? Uh, and, and I've got two friends that that are organic farmers and they're they're coming forward now and this is, it's just things are starting to happen. It's just not going to happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen next week. And the the or the consumer has the voice. So you vote with your dollar, basically. What what we demand is what you guys will respond to because it's still a market and still a matter of making a living. Correct. Right. And the thing is, is there. An example that I, I used on, on my Facebook page the other day, and I don't know if too many people read it, but when I was in my manager manager's position, I had a school-to-work program. And I would went to the school, and I said, I think that's a nice program, but instead of sending the students, we need to send the faculty. Because by just sending the students and then teaching them school-to-work, it would be like me going to school and teaching algebra. If you give me a, a few hours in the summer, and 
will help the program. And that's what we need to do with the farmer and the consumer, is we need to wear each other's shoes for a while. We need to understand each other. The the farmer, the American farmer, whoever produces the food, and that farmer could be uh, someone down the street that's got window boxes, like you're saying, that sell on tomatoes. That a farmer, you know, there's there's the farmer can be stereotyped, but it can be anyone's a farmer. You have a garden, you're a farmer. But, but the thing is, is the customer. We need to know. As a, I need to know what the consumer needs and if I'm capable of doing that. Am I going to cater to this particular market or this market, or, you know, et cetera? Then you also have to do what you love. I love to raise cattle. I don't like to raise corn and beans. I love to raise cattle. And so there's also the corn fed versus the grass fed. And you know what I told my my father said when I said that there's a demand for grass-fed cattle? You know what he said? I thought all cows ate grass. <laughs> you know? Exactly. That That's a really interesting perspective. I like the fact that you said, you know, if you have a garden, whether it be a box garden on your patio or you are a farmer, you know, with many different crops, that you're, you're a farmer. So it really is. You're growing mm-hmm. food for consumption. So, mm-hmm. so you know... Getting back to you and your, you have some interesting stories that you had shared with me previously. You had this wall of failures and successes, and I found that just utter fascinating that someone had actually, you know, put a wall up to remind themselves of their inadequacies and failures, but you had a really interesting perspective on that, and it was very healthy. Can you, would you mind sharing this, how this all came about? Yeah, when I started started in the writing and the drawing, and I I'd sent out some portfolios and some collections, and and I didn't get a lot of response. I got some immediate response, so of course that was a success. So I put that up on the wall. That picture actually shows when I had a hair, Lori, before it all fell out. So that's mm-hmm. you know, but I put this picture of myself up there. It, it came out in the paper with me and this cartoon. Big confidence booster, and then all of a sudden I don't hear from anyone. So I got this picture on this lone wall, and then I started getting letters of rejection. Instead of putting them in the drawer, I put them up on the other wall to help motivate me to try harder. So every time I would get a rejection letter, I'd put it in a frame and put it up there. And if I had more rejection letters, I would try and send out other portfolios and other things to try to, I guess move the tally up on the success wall a little more. That's fascinating. And that's how I, yeah. that's how I motivated myself. And when someone would come into my office, they would look at those pictures, and then they'd look at me like, why are you putting a rejection letter from Hallmark Cards up there? <laughs> why are you putting syndication letters of rejection up there? It doesn't make sense. And then they'd go and they'd look at the, the three or four papers and the magazines that I draw for, and they never did really understand it, but uh, I understood it, and it helped me try harder. Um, That's amazing. I mean, did you ever look at the wall of rejection and say, 
enough of this. I'm, I don't want to be reminded or it just, would it just light the, you know, put a little fuel on the fire each and every time? I mean, did, was there ever any doubt that you were doing the right thing by doing that? No, I'd look at them and sometimes I'd get angry, mm. but obviously I wasn't supplying a product that they wanted. So I had to try to do something different. I even contacted a professional cartoonist, um, and he was kind enough to write me. I sent my work out to him to, to, uh, For I actually welcome, well, welcome any criticism that he might have or any, any, any suggestions. And he had told me, and, and I still remember this today, he says, do not, do not be afraid to be criticized because at least you know they're reading or they're, they're looking at your work. Hmm. And I, I never forgot that. He also said it was too detailed in my work. Just needed the cartoon does not be needs to be that detailed. But you can't you can't change who you are and what you do. And I, I never sought any education to draw. It was just something that was given to me as a gift from God. And uh, I just uh, tweaked it and did what I could and, and tried not to change much. And, uh, but but uh, I didn't frame his letter. I left it in the book, but I always remembered what he said. So then I tried to do things different with my work, et cetera. But, um, I think that's a great Farm, reminder. Go ahead. Once, once Farm News hired me full-time to draw for them, I dropped the other papers because all they, they were I was drawing for just a subscription to the paper. Mm. It was really hard to keep up with all those papers and magazines and writing and all that, plus farming. And, and, uh, and I had a job as well, mm. full-time job, and, and raising kids and all that. And uh, so I dropped everything. And I still have all those. Uh, when, when the plant closed, of course, I took all those down with everything else. And I still have them here. I don't have them on the wall. <laughs> but uh, that's that's pretty inspirational, though. I mean, it makes a lot of sense that even though you've been rejected, it's not a personal rejection. It's just a rejection of the product that's not what they're needing, and that that does mean that they're actually looking at it. You know, it's like a criticism of, for example, a podcast or a criticism of an article that I would write. Um, now, some people are just plain mean, and you just yeah. delete you delete the those you know people who are hiding behind a keyboard or piece of paper and writing, you know, just unnecessary ignorance and meanness because there are people who feel the desire to harm others just for they for their own good. But for the majority of people who give, you know, criticism, they don't mean it to be hurtful or to make you feel guilty, but take it and learn from it, you know, and then you take from it what you feel is important and you say thank you for the advice and move on. You know, it's like when I was pregnant with my children, I got so much advice on how to raise kids and, you know, what to feed them and, you know, how to discipline them and how to be a parent. But I took what I wanted and, and made it my own and then, you know, put your own spin on it. I think that's a great, uh, it's a great reminder. I, I really like that idea. So instead of a, you know, you should have your goals, they, you know, they, these people have their their posters with all their goals and everything on it. But I think it's a reminder too, when you look at your failures, where you've been. You know, where, where have you been I, in your I journey? Do think, 
I do think failure is actually a hidden seed to success. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you just have to, I'm not saying that you defeat your failures, but uh, there's a lot of success and growth in that. Uh, my wife is the master of positive thought. She says, you get what you ask for. If you say that you're going to be unsuccessful at something, you throw that out there, the universe is going to throw it back at you, and that's exactly what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, she, and I'm, I'm terribly hard on myself. This job of farming, and I just don't think people understand how brutal it actually is. Everything, the only thing that you can control in this business is your anger. I mean, you've got the markets, the weather, the cost. The, I mean, everything. And when you raise animals, you've got you constantly trying to keep everything alive. Um, it's just it it takes its toll on you. It makes you, and I, and that's the most important thing about. It's not the farming that I love. It's the culture and the heritage that I love. Mm-hmm. That's what I don't want to lose. It's. My neighborhood, the people around me are so compassionate, they're so caring, they're just so nonviolent. They're so laid back, relaxed, enjoy life, and and there's 15, 20 miles to near stoplight. And it's hard for me to explain that to someone that's born and raised on concrete. so you, you take off your shoes and walk around in the grass and and uh, enjoy what's around you. And we have a, a chance of doing that every day here. Um, that's what I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose that that part of the culture. Mm-hmm. It's homey. It's comforting. Reminds us of you know your grandpa and your dad and all those memories that you must have had as a child. Yeah, it's uh, you know I'm on a I'm on a century farm. Uh, my uh, great grandparents. It's just kind of a unique little love story. Uh, my great grandfather, great great grandfather, came over, established some land, and sent for his new wife Amelia from Germany. She came across on a ship up the Mississippi, two covered wagons. They settled here and. And it's been a family farm ever since. Wow! But uh, that, you know, it's it's uh, it's all turning into dust in this heartland. That all these these homesteads are going away. You know, the large business is taking over. It's it's no different. Farming's no different than your local shoe store down the street. I remember my father going to town and taking his shoes to have them repaired. Now we go to a large retail company and buy a new pair when the sole comes off mm. you know we, we've run this running out of business it's just uh, farming is just the last the last of it kind of the last frontier of taking yeah, a small yeah. business yeah absolutely so i'm curious you know you've done all these cartoons you, we talked about my history of drawing cartoons and surviving medical school and what are your favorite quotes and some of your favorite cartoons that you've drawn Cartoons is difficult because I've drawn over 2,000 or so cartoons. I don't really have a favorite. I, I do have a lot of them that come to mind, but they're, they're my favorite. And 
my wife and I, we, we were, or I was approached by a publisher, and we had to get a collection together, and my wife and I went through. She'd giggle at some of them. I thought were not funny, and I thought some were funny. She throwed in that we did not want to put that in the collection pile. So um, what I think is a good cartoon is might be different than what you think is a good cartoon, Lori, but I do have some quotes that I are my favorites. Uh, and actually, my mind, it's, it's, my mind never stops. I don't know where this stuff comes from. It just, it's all night, all day. I, it's, I've got pages and pages of philosophical quotes. I've got them on hard drives, soft drives. I've got them on my phone. I have them everywhere. I can't keep track of all of them. I don't know where it's coming from. But one of my favorites, and, and it came shortly after I started posting stuff on Facebook and the criticism and the, the mean people that we were talking about earlier, the messages that I was I was getting, the phone calls from home. And I've been a, and the quote is that I've been an artist and a writer most of my life, and I've come to the conclusion that the only person who can make people happy is the one who drives the ice cream truck. <laughs> and I've tried really, really hard not to offend. I mean, probably more than anyone trying not to offend someone, but it doesn't always work that way. And it's really hard for me because I was raised that way, not to offend people. And if you take a child and you teach that child that the color red is actually the color blue, they get it out. They, they get out in the real world, and, and they don't understand. And uh, so it's difficult for me to understand. Bitter people leave a bad taste in my mouth, I guess. But another quote is, uh, "You can't have the mouth and the mind open at the same time." That's a very good one. I actually like that one a lot. And mom always had a way of getting me to understand. She was partially blind, and she told me one time that blind people were not prejudiced. And she, she actually, there were several, we weren't allowed to use some name-calling. And mom had worked with special needs people. And I kept calling my sister a name, so she loaded me up. She took me to a facility where there was mentally handicapped people. She toured me around that as a young boy. And I asked her one day, I said, when we were walking around the halls that, that day, I said, Mom, why are they why are they not normal? And she said to me, I'll never forget it, she says, Well maybe they are normal and you're the one that's different. And we need to we, go, we need to think about that. When we, we think someone's different or they're handicapped, they're not like us, maybe we're the ones that aren't normal. Another one another one of my favorites is adults have forgotten the joy in digging to the bottom of a toy box. And the most important thing about being an adult is remembering what it's like to be a child. And we need to do that when we discipline our children. We need to remember what it was like to be a kid. And when it's right when we're raising teenagers, it also makes us very smart because we know what it was like to be a teenager. They don't realize that we were teenagers at one time, so it makes us actually pretty brilliant. So mm. you just have to remember what it's like to be a kid, and, and it'll make you a better adult. So, 
those are three of my favorites. I do have some quotes on my on my website if you yeah. like to look them. That, what is your website? Can you help us uh, help people find? It's Friday Cart Friday Cartoons dot com. Friday Cartoons dot com, and then you have your Facebook. Uh, do you have a Facebook page or just your personal Facebook yep, account? Just, just my personal Facebook account. Okay, and someone can choose to follow you there as well. Yes, and I'm on Twitter as well. What's your Twitter handle? I don't know. My kids set that up on Mother's Day, and I I, <laughs> I don't have it on my phone. Uh, what we do without our children and technology? You know, that's a really brilliant question. Um, my kids have been my savior more than once, although I am on Facebook way more than they are. One of them doesn't even have a Facebook account. He's 18. So um, just one more, a few more questions. Do you have time? Yes. What did I don't want to get, I don't want to be too windy. I, no, I don't know. No. What... You're doing great. You're doing great. I always, I could talk forever to some people, but I know they, you know, like last night I did an interview and he said, you have 45 minutes and we got to the 45 minutes and he goes, okay, I'll give you 10 more minutes. I'm like, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so I'm like, well, I must've done something right in this interview. But, um, you know, what advice would you give America right now about anything you feel pertinent to living a full life? Well, I guess to live a full life, I do understand the importance of a healthy body. But the mind needs to be healthy too, Lori. Um, make time for yourself. You know, spend time with nature where seclusion is is the only true freedom talk to God sit in silence and find yourself you know you skip a step once in a while I do that randomly I'll just skip and dance for no reason and always always welcome laughter hmm. always and right now our country's a little crazy you think um, I think I posted a cartoon on Facebook the other morning, but I quickly took it down because I wanted to save this message for you. Oh. And it was about a wall. And every wall finds a graffiti. And as you know, wall graffiti is beautiful, and it's a creative way to express one's feelings. But profanity and prejudice ruins the artistry. And... We pulled up probably the most diversified people in the world, and we formed a country we call United. But lately, those who preach to eradicate prejudice are actually using it as a weapon. And when we use prejudice to fight prejudice, we're left with prejudice. And I don't really have the answer to that. But it actually seems to be worse within our democracy, probably more than race and religion. The hate runs deep within our political parties. Mm. And hate can destroy more lives than any natural or man-made disease. And we find ourselves criticizing a book that's not even written yet. And I don't – I really don't have an answer, but I do know that 
what's probably most disturbing about it is that we're truly united when an enemy attacks our country. Mm-hmm. That's when we show most patriotism. That's when we love each other. Um, it's kind of like when I used to thump my little sister. I could rough her up, but if anyone else picked on her, I'd fight to the death. Right. And and uh, I remember how proud I was to be an American after 911, even though it was a disaster and one of the one of the worst things that's ever happened to our country. I was too young to remember Pearl Harbor, but my grandmother told me a lot of stories about World War One and World War Two. She was very inspiring to me. Um, her life was lived through night raids. Can you imagine living in rural Iowa and the emergency broadcasting system, which we all ignore today, when it would come on, the whole family would sit in darkness. Their lights had to be afraid of air raids. Their lights would be shut off. They would hide in silence in their own house. And we don't know what terror is. Um, we think we do, but we don't know what that's like. And after listening to my grandmother, I grew up across the road from her and listened to her. We don't know what that is. We think we know what it is, but we need to unite as a nation. If I had the answer, Lori, I wouldn't be drawing cartoons and feeding cows. (laughs) You know, I think many of us together probably do have most of the answer. You know, it's it's coming to the table and discussing it um, with an open mind, like you said, but you can't have an open mind and an open mouth at the same time. And I just posted earlier on my own Facebook page regarding listening, you know, the skill of listening, you know, changed my trajectory of my career. You know, we had talked about, obviously, I'm a plant-based doc, and you have two daughters that are vegan, and was it your mother was vegetarian? And, you know, just the that alone, you know, listening to a patient sent me in that direction, which has brought, you know, healing to a lot of people through God's grace of letting me hear that message. And I agree. I think, you know... We all have to unite and figure out the path instead of quit attacking each other and, you know, ridiculing. But let's look at the facts. There are facts. There are there are absolute truths. I think we forget that in our society. People want to live by their own um, designated rules and regulations or whatever belief system they have. But in fact, there are, there are absolute truths. You know, you jump off a building, you may say gravity doesn't exist, but you're going to fall. You will fall to the ground. So. Um, you know, I, I think that you're absolutely you're on the right track when you say that. So finally, do you have one last question? What is your life's motto? My life motto? Yep. Well, it's really quite simple. It's just be kind. Nice. You help someone smile. It could, you know, by helping someone smile, it could be the only hope they have left. Mm-hmm. You don't want to kill someone's smile. And if you walk through the store it's i wrote this in my page my facebook page the other day the only the only thing more contagious than a kindergartner is a smile (laughs) and it is contagious uh there are people that won't smile back at you but most of them will Mm -hmm. we waved in this part of the country we would go down the road we wave at people and so we live in a, a kind of a different laid back 
rural area. And it's not to say that I'm, I'm fascinated with going to town. I don't, I can understand the road rage is, 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 I don't know how you do it living in town. Um, <laughs> it's crazy, but take a deep breath many times. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you have to, but, um, I don't, I don't, it's not that, that the urban life was better than the rural life. It's just that this is what I've grown up to know. So be kind. I and also, okay. also, behavior is design and portrait of your own character. You need to display that well. My father told me that. He said, your character will defend itself. And that's so important. How you behave you know, is is you're showing everyone who you are, whether that's behind a keyboard or whether that's in person. You know, that's really really important. Yeah. What you say, what you do, how you act—it's all a portrayal of who you are. Um, sometimes we forget that. And just a little segue into when you let's say someone has learned some lessons and they change their character. It's just a matter of time before people begin to wonder, you know, for example, what has changed? What what events changed your character? And that, like you said, that behavior is an amplification of who you are. And so they start wondering and asking questions. I think that's a very wise dad that you had. It's very cool. Well, Mr. Friday, Rick Friday, I will tell you it has been delightful, <laughs> as always. And... Uh, I hope we can have many more conversations in the future, either recorded or not. And, uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of acknowledging people at the end of my podcast. Um, I picked that up from another podcast I had been listening to, and I think it's very pertinent to do, is to say thank you for everything you've done and everything you will do and all the lives that you have and will affect. And it's just uh, a joy to be a part of someone's uh life-changing words and work and i i hope you have many successes and new adventures um in this new chapter of your life that's uh beginning to unfold well i wish the same to you Lori, and i thank you so much for taking the time to get to know me and uh i'm i i, I have a new friend and i'm excited about that and, and uh i look forward to talking to you again wonderful 